So this week, we are finishing our series in Abraham. We're going to be in Genesis 25, uh, short, four short verses, 7 through 10, as we wrap up the, the, the journey, the difficult journey of faith, as we have called it for Abraham, where Abraham has learned what it's meant to walk by faith. And in today's passage, the last of this series, we are going to finally see Abraham's journey come to an end. So let's jump right into the passage. Genesis chapter 25, verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last breath, breathed his last, and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, and east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. This is the word of the Lord. So we have just read a fact of life that every single one of us shares with Abraham. Every single one of us listening to this message, including myself, is one day going to die. Or one day we're going to pass away, we're going to kick the bucket, we're going to cash in our chips... Uh, we're going to bite the dust, we're going to give up the ghost. Whatever phrase you want to use, we are all going to die. Some of us will die from natural causes, a ripe old age. Some of us will die at unexpected times uh, from disease or, or war or accidents or violence or what have you. But we will all die. And because we'll all die, we think about death. We talk about death. And I remember when I was younger, we'd always do the would, would you rather. Would you rather be burned alive or frozen to death? You ever play that when you're younger? Some of you are like, now that we're older, we do that game too. This reminds me of one of my favorite jokes. You've heard the, I, I've heard this joke a million times, and I love it no matter how many times I hear it. Uh, someone once wrote that when I die, I want to go like my grandfather did, peacefully in his sleep, not screaming and yelling like the other people in his car. Now, like I said, sometimes we'll die in a normal way, and uh, sometimes we'll die in very unusual ways. For example, there was a 16th century man named Hans, and his last name I could not pronounce if I tried. He was a mayor in Austria. He had a beard that was over four and a half feet long. And one time in an emergency, he, uh, he tripped over it on some stairs and broke his neck. So, Tim, slow down on your beard back there. There was also the Great London Beer Flood, yes, you heard that right, in 1814, a vat containing over 135,000 gallons of beer ruptured in a brewery, causing a massive beer flood that destroyed buildings and resulted in eight people dying. It's, a tr it's like, this, I'm not making this up, this actually happened. This is, yeah, they made some changes to the beer industry after this event. One way or another, we will all die. Now, I say all of us don't like this fact. And so since the beginning of time, people have been doing their best to avoid death. But all attempts have and will continue to fail. There's the story of a certain man who was walking in his neighborhood when he came face to face with death. And he noticed a, a, an expression of surprise on death's face. But they didn't say anything to each other. And, and he was so scared and frightened that death was coming for him, he ran to a wise old man 
And he said, what, what should I do? And the wise old man was like, I think the best thing for you to do is get in a car, drive all night to another city. And so he did that. He hopped in the car and he drove to a town that was so far away, no one had ever done it in one night. Barely slept. And when he got there the next morning, he congratulated himself on having eluded death. Just then, you can guess what happened. Death came up and tapped him on the shoulder. He said, excuse me, I've come for your life. Why, exclaimed the terrified man. I thought I saw you yesterday near my home. Exactly, said death. That's why I looked so surprised. I had been told to meet you today in this city. Now, obviously, this is a fictional story, but it illustrates a truth for us. You can search for the fountain of youth all you want. You can go with Indiana Jones and to find the Holy Grail, but no matter what you try, the truth of Hebrews 9 will ring true, that it is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes, anybody? Judgment. Now, this does not mean death has to be a bad thing. I was going to dress in all black, but I thought that might be too much for us. Christianity teaches that death is a good thing. It is a good thing for those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. King Jesus says this to John in Revelation. We talked about this beginning of the year. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I have died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. What does this mean? Well, think about what keys do. They lock and they unlock. This verse speaks to the phrase, the power that Jesus Christ has, that he has the authority to decide who dies and who lives, that he controls life and death. Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death and Satan. This is why we opened our service this morning singing death was arrested, which means to be put away, to be locked up, to be done with. Jesus declares in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall, anybody? He live. Though this is not the focus of today's passage, the only one who needs to fear death are those who have not repented of their sins and acknowledged Jesus as their Lord and Savior. For whoever rejects Jesus in this life, he will honor that choice in the next life. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that they are yet to acknowledge your kingship. Lord, today would be the day that they realize the faith that they have now in themselves or in something else. It's a folly, it's a lie. I pray today would be the day that they realize that their faith needs to be in one place, in you, that you have died for their sins that separate them from you, that they would repent, put their faith in you, and understand in a moment as they choose to acknowledge you as Lord and Savior that they become a child of God and they no longer have to fear death. Make it true in their lives today, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, once again, for those who acknowledge King Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they should have a very different view of death. Rather than death being the viewed as the end of the book, it's simply the end of the chapter. That's it. It's the end of the chapter. 
looking at it a different way, in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians Paul uh, looks at our body, our life, uh, and he uses the illustration of a tent. Anybody like to go camping here? Got some campers? Yes, we got campers around. Now, tents are cool. I love being in a tent. But they're made to be temporary, right? You ever go camping and the first night you're like, this is great. You got your tent, you make your bed, everything's clean. You cook under the stars, right? You're like, man, we need to do this all the time. This is fun. But if you stay in that tent five, six, seven, eight days, it kind of starts to lose its glamour a little bit. Everything starts smelling a little bit ripe. The sleeping bag's not as comfortable as it once was. There's dirt and water everywhere. And you just start, especially as you get older, start thinking about that comfortable bed and the warmth of your comforter at home. So here you are in a campground, in a tent. It's temporary, it's fun, but really, long-term, you long for the comfort and permanence of your home. And so the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know that if the tent, that is our earthy, earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. A home that is permanent, that's built to last. Now we all realize as we get older, no matter how much we try to keep ourselves in good shape, and we should, we should exercise, feeling conviction as I say that, we should eat appropriately, for the most part, feeling conviction as I say that, but no matter what, as time goes on, we recognize the limited and temporary nature of this tent we have been getting. The flaps get a little flappier, right? The poles get a little wiggly, a little loose. The edges become frayed. The materials start to wear away, right? And you notice it when you look in the mirror. So this is why I'm glad when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. Because he, he goes on to say, after calling the body a, a tent, he says, in this tent, we earnestly groan. Right? Have you ever noticed as you get older that you start to groan a little more when you get up? Right? You start to feel it a little more when you sit up in the morning. And I'm only in my 40s, mid-40s, and I feel it. And I was talking to someone two weeks ago, and they, I was telling about something, they were laughing because they're in their 60s, and they're like, just wait. You have no idea. But Paul's like saying that this whole process is from God. I mean, have you ever wondered why our bodies wear down? Like, why do our bodies wear down? Why don't we just get to like the ripe old age of 21 where we're strong, you know, looking good, feeling good, and we stay at that age, stay in that peak shape, and then one day we just keel over and die? I mean, why does everything start to deteriorate? And I've wondered, like, I wonder if God like lets us deteriorate physically so that we're more willing to leave these alien bodies, these tents, like, we're more excited about the future home that God has presented for us, prepared for us. That there are reminders that this life is not all that there is. So next time you feel an ache and pain, you can just say, God, I praise you for reminding me that this life is not the, all that there is. <laughs> You're like, no, I'm just gonna be grumpy about it. <laughs> 
So we've established you are going to die. Could be a week, could be a month, could be a year, could be 10 years, could be 50, but it will happen. But that if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, there's no fear in death, he's taking you somewhere better. He's taking you home. So with that foundation, I want to spend the rest of our message talking about how we prepare for death. In the same way that when we're, we're done camping, there's things that we do to go home well, clean up our site, pack up our things. There are things that we should be focused on and thinking about knowing that one day we are going to die. And that's why it's a great chapter because Abraham is somebody who died well. He died really, really well. And I wanna pull a few truths out from his reminders that, that, that remind us how we can die well. First, I wanna look at Genesis 25, nine and 10. I want you to see where Abraham was buried. It says, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, right? And then you go to verse 10 and it says, this is the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. He buried his wife there and now he's being buried there. When Isaac and Ishmael went to bury their father, where to decide, you know, they didn't have to decide where to bury him. They didn't have to decide on how to bury him. Abraham had it all taken care of. Not, all, not only that, and, and we didn't read these verses, but he'd already given instructions for how he wanted his wealth to be distributed. This is important to make note of, and this is a very practical session here, that far too many people do not take the time because they're too wrapped up in the, the issues of this world and this life to wrap up the business of their lives well before they die. And I see it all the time as a pastor. Someone passes away, they did not prepare properly, and it only adds to the stress of those who are dealing with the death of their lost loved one. And I see the devil and he gets in there and he uses it just to fan the flames of discord between family members. And if you had someone close to you die, you've seen it for yourself. So I wanna give you a few practical things to think through that uh, others in this church have shared with me over the last few months who have gone through this, that you may, in this way, die well. Before I go through these quickly, and I'm gonna go through them fast, so you're gonna have to come back and probably watch this later if you missed anything, or you can text me and I'll give you the list. I'm not a lawyer. Okay, it's not my legal expertise. My legal expertise ends with law and order. That's about it, right? If that show's still even going. But I wanna give you some things to think about and I'm gonna, like I said, I'm gonna move fast. My goal is to get you thinking a, thinking a bit and hopefully the Lord will encourage you where you need to move. First, so first thing, do you have a will? Do you have a will that says, this is where I want my stuff to go when I die? And make sure you pray about this. Because what is yours is really his. Everything that you have has been given by God. Even if you earned it, you only earned it because of what he gave you. Your ability to move your arms, to think, to form words, were all a gift of God. And so you need to pray and say, Lord, what benefits your kingdom? Where do I leave my assets? To who? Second, do you have a living will? Or it's called a power of attorney for healthcare, or sometimes a health proxy. This, there may become a time where you have to have medical decisions made for you and you're not capable of making them. This is something you need to have. It's a document that says, this is who I want making medical decisions. And, this, and even if you're married, you need to look into this because laws uh, will vary by state 
Uh, and where they're loose, they'll vary by hospital. And so sometimes, even if you're a spouse, you ain't gonna always be able to make the call. And even if one spouse is gone and there's one remaining, one parent, I've watched children fight over how, what kind of medical care their parent needs. And it is ugly. Why? Because no direction was given. So I encourage you, get one of these made to say, this is who I want to make decisions for me. And this is what I want done. This is how I want it to be handled. If I, do I want to be kept alive for at all costs or do I not want to? In fact, I have a guy, um, I have a guy and, and, and a couple ladies and I'm the point person for them uh, in their, their power of attorney for healthcare. And they've made it really clear. Look, I don't want to be unnecessarily resuscitated. They're like, just take the pillow, put it over my face and send me to Jesus. And so they've made it really easy for me when that time comes of what to do. They even told me what kind of pillow to use, right? They made it really easy. I'm just kidding. Okay, I I don't have to be confused. Third, if you have young kids, have you looked into health life insurance? I have watched in the past where I've seen a couple times someone die, one of the parents, and there'd be no life insurance, and then the other parent is left not just crushed emotionally, but financially crushed as well. Speaking of kids, if you both kick the bucket, or if you're a single parent, you kick the bucket, who gets custody of your kids? Do not leave it open-ended. Ask the Lord, where shall we leave our kids? Make sure they don't end up with the craziest member of the family, all right? Make sure they're gonna end up with somebody who's gonna teach them about Jesus. Are your beneficiaries updated? Some people don't realize this, but your will does not override your beneficiaries. And I have seen awkward moments where somebody would name beneficiaries like in their retirement 30 or 40 years ago, they die, and even though relations completely changed, relationships, they never updated a thing. So update those, those insurance policies, those 401k, anything else that you have listed with a beneficiary. We keep rolling down the list. Have you communicated what you want for a funeral? What kind of arrangements do you want? Do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? Do you want to like be on a put on a memorial space flight? Okay, this is where there's actual companies that do this. They will t- it's like for 1500 bucks at least. They will t- which please waste some money, but you might be into this. They'll take a portion of your ashes and on one of the next rocket ships, they will send your ashes into space. That is a thing. Or my personal favorite is a fireworks memorial where you can have a company, I think, this, I think they were called Heavenly Stars or something, so cheesy, but they'll take your ashes and they'll put it in with fireworks so that the next fireworks display, you can explode in the night sky. <laughs> Those weren't even the weirdest ones. Whatever it may be, save your family the trouble and heartache of trying to decide what to do for you, especially if you're a simple person. I've seen it, because uh, when someone dies, there often is a lot of guilt and remorse over issues and things that were left open or if there was a broken relationship and people in their guilt, they'll spend extravagant amounts of money to make the biggest and best casket and, and grave. Uh, you know, I know one person, they put two giant angels next to the grave. They put a sit-in area, right? All because they felt guilty about how the relationship ended with their mother. It was thousands upon thousands of dollars. I've already told my wife, look, when I die, you can burn me up, 
just throw me in some bushes somewhere. I don't care. I'm dead. You want to bury me? Whatever. That's fine. Just find the cheapest old box you can build by yourself. Shove me in there. Right? Save your family that heartache of saying, man, this is what they would want. Right? Say, I'm dead. Keep it cheap. Use that money for God's kingdom, not for me. And I know you can't think of every detail, but whatever you give them will save them the heartache in the end. And will save that inner family turmoil at the same time. Two more things. Where do you keep all this paperwork? It is no good, another thing as a pastor I've seen, if nobody knows where to find it. Okay, you can keep them with your attorney. They'll often hold on to them for you. You can keep them in a safety deposit box. Only problem with that is who else has the key? If there needs a medical proxy needs to be used and no one can get in the safety deposit box, it's not any good. You can put them in a home safe, but once again, who has the code? Some people choose a friend, a trusted friend hopefully a well-organized friend to hold on to it. Whatever it may be, make sure these documents are no good if no one knows where to find them. Now, I ran through this super fast, and it probably, if you've ever done any of this, can seem a little overwhelming. It's not as bad as it sounds. And remember, you know, what do they say about how to eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? Just take one step at a time. And you don't have to use a, do this alone. They have online lawyers, uh, you know, online wills you can do now, which are very cheap, and you can do them in your jammies on your couch. I always recommend getting a real lawyer. It's going to be more expensive, but I, I've used those online will makers, and for me, maybe I miss stuff. Sometimes I missed things, you know. If there were state-specific laws, uh, if there were complete, you know, complex estates, and, and sometimes there's witness and notarization processes that you have to go to, depending on state, that can make your life a heck in probate. And so I always recommend, even though it costs more money, it's worth it to find a lawyer to put all of this together for you. And if you, have, if you like, want to go down this road and you need help, I, I'm sure i got a couple I know. One other thing I thought of, and my wife brought this up to me. If you were going to die right now, like you're about to keel over, who has access or who knows how to get access to your bank accounts? Like, we've been married for what? 20 years, and I think 15 years into it, she didn't even have the login to anything. Like, I didn't even think about giving it to her, like, other than, like, one of our bank accounts. And so I got everything into a master password program, and, and I give her the, you know, and, and, and those have their security risks too, but they're the best option I found. Um, and I gave her the master password so she can find anything if I keel over. My email accounts, social media profiles, online subscriptions, my internet passwords, Make sure you provide instructions so people can get into these. And then finally, put it in your calendar that once a year you review all of this so you don't end up 30 to 40 years from now having beneficiaries listed that no longer are relevant, right? I'm doing mine, I put mine for May 1st of every year, two weeks after tax season because I know I won't touch them before then. These are not fun things to discuss. They're not spiritually invigorating, you know, or encouraging. But you have a responsibility as a steward of what God has given you to make sure it is handled in a God-honoring way even after you die. That's what a good steward does. They are a steward from the moment they receive it to the moment they hand it off. And we should hand it off well. Amen, church? All right. That's that. Like I said, if there's anything I said, and you're like, what? Text me later. I'll send it to you. 
Now, besides taking care of your business, there was one other thing I wanted us to think about, realizing that one day we will all bite the dust. That we will all, as the great poet, uh, oh, what was his name? Who wrote the bar, The Gambler? Was it, who wrote the song, The Gambler? Anybody remember? Kenny Rogers. He says, one day we'll all break even. You remember that song? It's a good tune. Anyway, I have no idea where that came from. I want you to think about, besides all the other stuff that you leave behind, there's one other really important thing, thing that you leave behind, and that is your legacy. What kind of legacy are you leaving behind? Have you ever thought about that? What kind of legacy am I going to leave when I'm gone? I mean, you look back to Abraham, and he, he died with a fantastic legacy. I mean, Paul in Romans calls Abraham the father of all who believe. James called Abraham righteous and a friend of God. And these are like just a couple of the things that are said about the Bible. A couple of the times that honor him, uh, that honor Abraham. I mean, wouldn't you love to have that said of you when you're gone? You were righteous, that you were right with God, that you were a person of great faith. Man, I can't even think of any better phrase to have on your tombstone if you have one to say, a friend of God. Now, if you've been here for the last five months, you might be tempted to wonder how he died with such a great legacy. We have looked time and time again at all the areas that he has failed. The times he's made decisions without prayer and just reacted in fear. He lied not once but twice about his wife out of fear, putting her in danger. There was times where he was a passive, being a spiritual leader in his home. And yet, the Bible tells us that he died with a great legacy. And this is one thing I appreciate about the Bible, is it like it doesn't paint its heroes as anything but real people with real flaws. It doesn't hide the ugly about the people that we look up to. Which gives me hope. Which gives me hope. Hope that even though we mess up, that we can have a great legacy when we're gone. So how did he die with a great legacy? Because he finished well. He finished well. How you start the race, it's not as important as how you finish the race, praise God. Through all of his mistakes and his sins and his fears and his failures, Abram made, and he made a bunch, he finished well. You know what that means? Every single one of you sitting here, every single one of you, me included, we still have a chance to finish well. Often we fail in our lives and then we feel like we have failed the test. But the test is not over. The journey is not over. God was never finished with Abraham and all his failures and so he's not finished with you. We have the opportunity to finish well. I told you before in high school, uh, my final semester, um, I was the TA of art class for five or six periods. Mr. Uh, I don't remember what his name, started with a T, Topco or something like that. And he, he maneuvered it, he, he twisted things, pulled some strings, and so like I had the easiest last semester. And um, I remember I'd go around and I'd help everybody and I used to watch those who would you know, work on the potter wheels and, and, and they would mold things out of mud and clay. And when they would screw up, and they often did, they wouldn't take the clay and throw it in the trash. They'd get more, they would just take it in a ball, they'd pour more water into it, and then they'd keep working on it. And they over and over and over until it became 
what they intended it to be. In the same way, there will be times we fail. There will be times that we fall apart. And there's consequences for that failure like we saw with Abraham. But if your faith is truly in Jesus, that no matter what happens, you can be confident of what it says in Philippians chapter one. That he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There will come a day where the potter wheel, potter's wheel of God will stop spinning and his work in you is done. And this is a great reminder because we often think that everything falls, rises and depends on us. And no, it rises and falls and depends on God and his promises. Now this doesn't mean we, don't, we just sit around and do nothing. We have a role to play. It's, um, it's like, a, a, like an athlete, right? Does an athlete give themselves the ability to run fast or to catch a ball or to have a good arm? No, that's God-given. That's where the power comes from. But the choice of whether to develop it, uh, to practice it, to gain experience at it, that comes from the athlete. And that's what Abraham did. Though he failed over and over, he kept at it. He kept looking to God. We saw several times where he'd go back to God after failing him. And through this, he grew into a great man of faith. This was his legacy. And it can be ours as well. This is why it says in Philippians, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So what does that look like in the context of Abraham's life? Two things. One, wherever God leads, follow. If you want to have a great legacy, wherever God leads you, follow. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Do you believe God to the point that you are ready to be obedient to the call of his word, to the direction of the Holy Spirit, even if you do not know where it leads? This could be confessing a sin you've been hiding, or maybe it's, it's leaving your comfort zone in some little way or big way for something new, something that's unknown, something that's scary. Someone who wants to have a great legacy will follow God wherever he leads, period. Notice I didn't say follow God perfectly, he'll just follow God. Second, whatever God promises Choose to believe that over everything else. Every time you make a decision about anything and how you view anything, you're putting your faith in that decision. You're putting in the faith in the source that's forming that decision. Put your faith in God. This does not mean the journey will be easy or quick. Look at Abraham. He, he said yes to God. He faced famine. He faced enemies. He faced it. Faced, faced waiting 25 years, 25 years. Some of you aren't even 25 years old. He waited that long for God's promise to come to fruition. And through all of it, God kept trusting in the promises of God. See, people who live by faith, they do not focus on statistics. They do not focus on probabilities. They do not focus on what ifs. 
People of faith, okay, so people of faith saying, look, this is what God is directing me to do. I have no idea where it's going. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know how long it'll be, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna take a step and see where he directs me and take another and another and another. And here's the cool part. I believe the Bible shows us that God gives great rewards to those who will obey without knowing all the details. I think it's a principle that God wants every one of his followers to experience. Learning to trust him step after step and watching that step turn into faith, which builds more faith until one day we're able to look, look back and be like, man, look how God has blessed me every step of the way how he's been there for me. I, I, I don't know many feelings in life, many realizations in life that are more impacting, more awesome to the soul than looking back and seeing how God has provided for you. And for those of you who have stepped out in obedience, you know what I'm talking about. Too many people never experience these rewards, this, the joys of, of, of following God in faith because we're never willing to take the first step without knowing the precise destination. Whether God's calling us to a new state, a new job, or even calling us to serve or go to a Bible study, big and little ways. There are men who went to our men's retreat last year, last week, did not wanna go, felt like they should. They took that step of faith and they were rewarded for it. We don't need to know the destination. Probably sometimes it's better if we don't. We don't need to know the details. Sometimes it's better if we don't. We just need to know that we trust God and what he sees more than what we can see. And if we follow him in obedience to his word and his spirit, that is how we have a great legacy. Step by step, day by day, and little decisions that we don't even think twice of that lead us to a great legacy in him that's an encouragement for those around us and the generations to come. As we close out this series, Abraham's story, in a way, is like our own story. Each of us is a nomad. We are not home. Like this man of great faith, we're called to embark on this great spiritual journey with a destination that only God knows. And, and Abraham's epitaph, it can be like ours. If like him, we choose to be fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. That one day, we'll be able to say what Paul wrote to Timothy. That I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Church, let us finish well. Amen.